0: Hey, what's going on, First Church? So glad you guys are here. And if you're new, my name's Chad. Welcome, we are pumped that you chose to worship with us today. In addition to this great crowd that we have here in the room, we also have people joining us in our Modern Hymn service in a different part of our building right now. And we have a bunch of people online. I just looked and we've got the Monteja and Davis families. They are coming back from Kentucky, good place to visit. We also have Cam and Elizabeth who are celebrating their four-day-old baby. They are at home with their newborn. So congratulations to you guys. Yeah, we are glad for them. That's awesome. And then also the leadership of our Moms Collective here at First Church. They went to a conference in Austin, and they are joining us online as well. Amy, Amber, Jennifer, Steph, and Melissa, welcome to you guys, as well as everybody else who's joining us online. So if you would put your hands together, welcome everybody. Let them know we're glad they're joining us today. And I have some exciting news before we jump into the message. You guys know a few weeks ago, we did our baby bottle drive for the Pregnancy Resource Center here in Owasso, And we collected $18,372 for the Pregnancy Resource Center. I just love our church's generosity because that money goes to help uh, young moms who are in need, as well as uh, stand up for the sanctity and value of human life. And so, thank you so much for your generous support. By the way, last year for the entire year, our church gave around sixteen thousand dollars to the Pregnancy Resource Center, and this is just the end of February, and we've already given over eighteen thousand. So, thank you very much for your generosity and for being a church that loves like Jesus. And I do love our. Church. I was gone last week. Matt did a great job, but I'm excited to be back with you guys. And I'm excited about this series, Base Camp, because we're talking about different foundational, fundamental issues that our church is built upon. And these are issues that are important because we need to make sure we are right when it comes to these truths. We have these truths right so that we can grow into the church that God wants us to be and also continue to become the people that God is calling us to be. The other day, I was watching Sports Center. I know that probably doesn't surprise you guys very much, but I was watching Sports Center. And well, actually, I wasn't really watching it. It was on the background, you know what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, my ears perked up because I heard them talk about Oklahoma City, you know, the Thunder. And so I was like, oh, I wonder what they're going to say. And what was interesting was they didn't talk about the players. They didn't talk about a previous game. They didn't talk about an upcoming game. They didn't talk about the coaching staff or strategy to win. They didn't talk about, you know, that the, that the Thunder could possibly make the playoffs this season, which nobody expected that. No, the whole subject of their report was Rumble, the Thunder's mascot. And I'm not sure if you saw this clip a few weeks ago, but basically, Rumble, the mascot, he snuck up behind a reporter from the opposing team before the game started, and this is what happened. Take a look at this. Isn't that great? At least she was a good sport at the end, you know? (laughs) My kids love mascots, and I don't know if your kids or grandkids are like this or not. My kids love mascots, whether it's Rumble for the Thunder or if it's Hornsby for the Tulsa Drillers, especially the Kentucky Wildcat. They love the Wildcat. My kids love mascots. And I was looking up the definition of a sports mascot the other day. I had a lot of time on my hands, and this is what I found. A sports mascot is a person, character, or thing that symbolizes a team and is believed to bring good luck, inspiration, and or motivation. And that makes sense. We know what a sports mascot is. And there's nothing wrong with having a sports mascot. In fact, I think they're a lot of fun. But the sad thing is, when I read that definition, I thought, you know, that's how a lot of people see God. That's how a lot of churches treat God. That he's just kind of this symbol that is believed to bring them good luck or motivation, inspiration to achieve their own personal goals in life. That basically we have our goals and our dreams and our desires and God's just kind of there to cheer us on. The problem with that is a sports mascot really doesn't contribute anything to the game. No offense if you've ever been a mascot in the past, but you get the crowd fired up. But the sports mascot isn't in the huddle when they're trying to call a play. The mascot never actually runs a play on the court or on the field. A mascot doesn't come up with strategy. It's not part of the coaching staff. It's just more of a symbol or a figurehead that provides inspiration. In fact, mascots... Don't even talk. I'm not sure if you remember this old ESPN commercial was on several years ago, but it was basically a commercial of some mascots who were going to have a teleconference, you know, and somebody was going to call in and talk to them. I think it was Scott Van Pelt, who was the ESPN commentator. And when Scott Van Pelt calls in, nobody says anything because mascots don't talk. So he thinks there's nobody on the other end of this conference call. If you haven't seen this video, take a look. Scott Van Pelt has joined the conference. Fellas, sorry I'm a little bit late. Hope I didn't keep you guys. Hello? Anybody there? Hello? Am I the first or what? Hello? Anybody there? They always cancel these things and no one tells me. Scott Van Pelt has left the conference. (gasps) Our God is not a mascot. Our God is not just a symbol. He's not a figurehead. He's not just a cheerleader. Our God is God. And because he is God, he has a voice and he is speaking to us. He wants us to hear from him and the primary way that we hear from him is through his word which he has given us. See, a hard truth that I had to learn a long time ago, and it changed my life when I did, it's pretty simple, but sometimes it takes us a while to get what we need to know, and it's this. God is God, and I am not. God is God, and I am not. And when you understand this, then you will let God instruct you. That scripture that was just on the screen, if you want to go back to it, it says, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. When you realize that God is God and I am not, you realize that in order to get through life, you need him. You need to pay attention to his voice. And contrary or different from sports mascots, our God does have a voice, And he's not satisfied with having an impersonal relationship with us. He's not satisfied having a relationship where he stands at a distance from us. I love how Paul compares our God to other false gods that are out there in the world. And in 1 Corinthians, look at what he says. He says, you know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. We don't worship a God who is speechless. He continues to speak to us. And that's why we here at First Church are a church that's guided and shaped and driven by the word of God because we believe it is the primary way that God speaks to his people today, that his word, the Bible, isn't just a book like any other book But it's a book that contains his very life presence. It is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And when we open up his word, we are transformed by his presence. And so in this series, Base Camp, we're looking at these different foundational issues of our faith. And today, we're going to talk about the Bible. And I believe this is so important because a healthy life is a life that is shaped and defined by the Bible, That's what we believe here at First Church, and we're not going to apologize for that. But if you're having trouble with that, if you don't know why we say that, well, that's what we're going to have a conversation about today, and I think it's going to be a good one. See, almost 4,000 years ago, God's people, they were enslaved in a country called Egypt. And God delivered his people from their slavery by sending this guy named Moses, you may be familiar with the story, to rescue them. And after God brought his people out of Egypt, he promised to give them a new home, a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We sometimes refer to it as the promised land. And God said, this is gonna be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's gonna, be, gonna have everything that you physically need. It's gonna be a prosperous, bountiful land. But before they ever entered the land, I want you to notice what God told Moses to warn the people. He said, be careful to follow every command I am giving you. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, this land is going to have plenty of bread. This land is going to have everything you physically want. This land is going to be prosperous, a land flowing with milk and honey. But this land in and of itself cannot provide for you everything that you need. This land in and of itself cannot provide for you a full, complete, whole, satisfied life. Man cannot survive, spiritually speaking, on bread alone. If you want to live a whole, satisfied life, you've got to listen to the word of God. You need a healthy diet of God's word because God's word nourishes and sustains our lives. That's why Jesus later will quote that very passage, that very verse that says man cannot live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the word of God. Jesus quotes that when he's being tempted by Satan because Satan is promising Jesus the world and Jesus says this whole world can't satisfy a person. Man cannot live on bread alone but only on the word of God. And that's why over and over again in scripture, The Bible uses the imagery of food to describe the word of God. I mean, just look at some of these examples. In Jeremiah it says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Look at what it says in the book of Job. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. I value God's word more than I value my daily bread. Peter refers to God's word as milk that gives us nourishment. In Psalm 119, it compares God's word to honey, sweet honey that is on our lips. And in the book of Hebrews, it describes the Bible as meat, meat that gives us strength. Anybody hungry yet after seeing that picture, right? I get it. See, the Bible refers to itself as food for our souls because it knows something that we need to know. We are nourished, we are sustained by the word of God and what we consume shapes us. You've probably heard it said before, you are what you eat. And that's true not just physically speaking but also spiritually speaking as well. What we consume shapes us. The music you listen to, the websites you go to, the conversations you have, the TV shows you watch, the news programs you watch, what you consume shapes you. And if we do not have a regular and consistent diet of God's word, then all the toxic information out there will poison our souls. And the Bible tells us how we are to consume it, how we are to approach it. Listen to what it says in Psalm verse one. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now I'm gonna pause right there for a second. So blessed is the one who doesn't go the path of the wicked but who delights in God's word. Can I tell you something? Some people come to me and they say, You know, Chad, I like God's word. I like God's word. I like the Bible a whole lot. I wish I had more time to study it. I just don't have time to study the Bible like I want to. I've probably made that excuse too. But can I just tell you it's not a good excuse? You know why? Because we always find time for the things that we delight in, we always find time for the things that we want to do, that we enjoy, that we cherish. See, when it comes to studying God's word, we don't have a time problem. We have a delight problem. I think sometimes we miss what God's word really is and what it can provide for us. And that's why the psalmist goes on to say, and who meditates on the law, his law, God's law, day and night. That word meditates is a really cool Hebrew word. In fact, the NIV It's kind of a soft translation of this word, but the word meditates is the Hebrew word "hagah." Can you guys say that with me on the count of three haggah? One, two, three. "Hagah." Yeah, you can go impress your neighbors today with some Hebrew, okay? So the word "hagah" is the same word that is used to describe a lion or a beast that is gnawing, chewing on its prey. Like a bone that has meat on it and a lion going after it and devouring it and savoring it and chewing it and, you know, stripping the bone of every morsel of meat. That's what haggah means. And the Bible is telling us that's how we are to approach it, with a haggah-type attitude. I mean, have you ever had a really good steak? You know, I showed a picture of a steak a second ago. You ever had a really, really, really good steak, like an expensive steak, you know, an above-average steak? When you have a steak like that and you eat it, let me ask, do you just like eat it, scarf it down as fast as you possibly can. I don't. I eat it very slowly, you know? I savor it. I devour it. I want to get every bit of taste out of it that I possibly can. And I bet most of you are like me. And yet when it comes to God's word, sometimes the way that we approach it is let's read as much of it as fast as we can and get through it as fast as we can so that we can all have all this intellectual knowledge. And we don't take the time to actually savor it, digest it, enjoy it, because it's meant for us to enjoy. It's meant for our good. You see, the ultimate goal of Bible study isn't memorization, but transformation. And so when we get to God's word, we just, hey, let's just scan through it and let's read as much as we can. I got this Bible plan and I got to read three chapters a day and I got to blah, 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 blah. Not that Bible plans are wrong or anything like that. But guys, I would rather you take one verse a day and really pour over and read it and digest it and savor it and really get what it means than read three chapters and walk away from it and have no idea what the text just said. That doesn't make any sense. We're not supposed to just scarf it out as fast as we can and not get anything out of it. We're supposed to read it in a haggah-type way. The ultimate goal of Bible study isn't memorization, but it's transformation. And so if you have all this intellectual knowledge, but it's not changing you, it's not transforming you, then you're missing what the point of the Bible really is. See, the Bible is from God. And this is something we need to wrap our minds around because the Bible makes a pretty big claim about itself. Listen to what Paul writes. Paul says this. Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love that Greek term God breathed. It's the Greek word theonoustos. You don't have to say that word with me, but theonoustos. I love looking at the ancient languages. Sometimes people ask me, why do you use so many different Bible translations? Because the Bible was originally written in Greek and Hebrew, and and so I like to go back to the original language, and sometimes I use a translation that I feel like captures it the best, you know, the meaning behind it. But that word God breathed, some translations use the word inspired. I think that's too weak of a translation, really. God breathed. This theonoustos Greek word, it means The life breath of God, or God breathed out. I want you to get this imagery. Just as God breathed life into you and me, just as God breathed life into the human race so that we could come alive, God has breathed life into the pages of Scripture so that it is the living and enduring word of God so that every time we open up the pages of Scripture, we're not reading just rules or commands on a page. We are experiencing the presence of the living God. And no other book can make that claim. The power of the Bible comes from God's presence within it. And that's what we need to remember every time we open up God's word. Because the Bible is distinct <coughs> excuse me, from all other books because of its author. Listen to what Peter says. Peter says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. In other words, when when these prophets wrote down Scripture, they weren't writing down their opinions or their view on things. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So if the Bible truly is from God, and if it does contain God's very presence, his living presence, which I believe it does, or this church believes it does. And what that means is it's perfect. It's flawless. It's timeless. And it is completely true. Now, I get it. That's a pretty big claim to make. Because there are a lot of books out there that aren't true. <laughs> there are a lot of books out there that honestly, you can buy them, but they're pretty worthless, honestly. Somebody told me about this book the other day and I had to order it. The book is entitled, Everything Men Know About Women. Now, I had to get it. It's by Dr. Alan Francis and Cindy Cashman, and this is the 30th anniversary edition, okay, of this book. If you look at it, it's a pretty thin book, honestly, but (laughs) even better than that, when you open up the pages, it is completely blank. There's not (laughs) anything in it at all. This thing cost me $5.99, folks, you know? I mean... There's a lot of worthless books out there. (laughs) What makes the Bible different? Well, if it truly is from God, of God, then we would expect a few things. First of all, we would expect historical accuracy, right? You may not know this, but I want you to wrap your minds around this. The Bible was written over a period of history of 1,500 years. 1,500 years. I mean... Think about how old America is. 1,500 years. I mean, no book covers more ancient history than the Bible does. It was written over 1,500 years by dozens of different authors, in multiple different continents, in three different languages, and it's all talking about the same God and his one plan to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what are the odds that a book that was written over a period of 1,500 years by multiple different authors in multiple different languages, what would be be the odds that there would be some historical inaccuracies or contradictions? Well, the odds are actually really, really high if it was written by men. But no book has been more criticized, more examined than the Bible. And yet, the Bible has never been proven false by any historical or archaeological discovery We have had tons of people examine the Bible over and over and over again. And there's not one tangible piece of historical or archaeological evidence that has ever proven that the Bible isn't true. Now, there are some people who want to say, well, I just can't believe that that would happen. I can't believe that a miracle would happen or that this would take place or I doubt that that ever happened like that. There are people who have their opinions but there has not been one tangible piece of historical evidence that has ever proven that the Bible isn't true. In fact, Dr. Nelson Gluick, who was a world-renowned archaeologist, said this: "It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever been controverted a, has ever controverted a biblical reference." Scores of archeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. Let me give you one example of this, the Hittite people. The Hittite people are mentioned over and over again in the Old Testament and for years we had no historical or archaeological evidence that the Hittite people ever existed. And so especially during the 1800s, there were a lot of secular scholars and historians who doubted the accuracy of the Bible because they said, if the Hittite people really existed, we would have some proof of their existence. And there was even one anci- uh, ancient, one old article from you know, a couple hundred years ago that said, if we ever find the Hittite people, then I'll believe the Bible, as if that was kind of like their go-to thing because there's no evidence of the Hittites ever existing. And then 1906 rolled around. And archaeologists unearthed an entire civilization they never found before. And when they started looking at their descriptions and inscriptions and all that kind of stuff, what they found was this was the Hittite people. Now it's amazing how the Bible knew the Hittite people existed long before modern historians ever did. Because the Bible is historically accurate. There are tons of other examples I can give. I don't have time for that. But we would also expect for the Bible to be scientifically accurate accurate and it is now you may have been taught that the bible and science they don't go together but if you were taught that that they're not compatible you were probably taught that by somebody who had an agenda because i know a ton of scientists and i've read a ton of books by scientists who say no the bible and science go hand in hand in fact i had lunch just a few weeks ago with a guy in our church who has a phd in chemistry a lot smarter than i am okay he has a phd in chemistry And he loved science. And as I was sitting across the lunch table from him, we were talking, he said, Chad, the more that I study science, the more it proves the God of Scripture. Guys, don't believe the lie that science and the Bible don't go hand in hand because they do. And in fact, science has often been, well, ahead. I mean, I'm sorry, the Bible's often been ahead of science. Let me give you an example of this. When you look at that 1500 year period when the Bible was written, when the Bible was penned by men, inspired by God, during that period of time, every civilization out there, besides those who believe the Bible, every civilization out there believed that the earth had to be held up by something because things just don't float in nothingness, okay? They didn't understand our concept of the solar system. And so, for instance, the Greeks, they believed that their god Atlas held up the earth. The ancient Hindus, they believed that the earth was held up by some giant elephants on the back of a giant turtle and then if you read some of their writings they say there was a serpent underneath the turtle that held up the turtle because you got to have something hold i guess it just kept going down i don't know but the earth had to be held up by something the ancient egyptians believed that the earth was held up by pillars all these ancient civilizations believe that the earth was held up by something and then you get to the bible and listen to what the bible says in the book of job it says he speaking of god suspends the earth over nothing How did the Bible know that when no other civilization on earth claimed anything close to that? Well, maybe it's because the Bible was written by the one who made the earth. See, the Bible has been ahead of science time and time again. But it's not just that it's scientifically accurate. It also has prophetic accuracy. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them in the New Testament. And the likelihood of that happening is near to impossible, and yet he did. And let me give you one example of this. I love this, this is great. In the book of Psalms it says this. This is a prophecy about Jesus, about the Messiah. It says, they have pierced my hands and feet, my enemies stare at me and gloat. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now we understand this is a prophecy about what? The crucifixion, right? Jesus' hands being pierced, his feet being pierced, nailed to a cross. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas, one of his disciples said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe, right? We know what this is talking about, but I want you to keep this in mind. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus. But even better than that, it was written 600 years before Roman crucifixion was even invented. The first readers of this psalm had no idea what this prophecy meant. Pierces his hands and feet, what's that talking about? 600 years before crucifixion was even a thing, God predicted how his son would have to suffer. And there's example like this over and over and over again. But for me, The best evidence is actually the personal evidence because I have seen with my own eyes the Bible change and transform countless lives. It has changed my life. There was a study that was done not too long ago of over 200,000 people and they asked them how often they read scripture and in this study, of those who claim to read the Bible at least four times a week, okay? So that may sound like a lot to you. It may not sound like that that much to you. I don't know, depending on how much you read the Bible. But of those who claim to read the Bible four times a week, drunkenness dropped by 62%. Pornography use dropped by 59%. Gambling dropped by 45%. Why? Not because the Bible says no, no, no but because the Bible says, yes, yes, yes. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you are loved by your creator. Yes, God does have a purpose for your life. Yes, you were made in the image of God. Yes, yes, yes. And when you realize who you are, as God reveals to you through his word who you were created to be and who you are in his son, it changes everything. It transforms us. And that's why we like to say around here, the Bible is for our good. Because it is, it really is. It's not just a bunch of rules that limit us. No, it's so that we can live the best possible life. You know why? Because the Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus is the focus of Scripture. He is the big picture of the Bible. Without Jesus, what we have in scripture is just a bunch of disconnected, random stories that have no cohesive theme whatsoever. Jesus is the big picture. I'm not sure if you've heard about this cliff in Brazil. People like to go there and post pictures on social media where they're like hanging off of the cliff. I mean, the first time I saw this picture, that scared me to death. Here's another one. I mean, look at what these people are trying. One one more before you go on to the next one. Yeah, this is nuts. People post this. And then I did some research on this cliff in Brazil. Show this next picture. Uh, it's really not that high off the ground. But if you get your camera just right, it looks like that you're really hanging over this high, high cliff. But when you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, it makes a little bit more sense why people are willing to do that, right? It's the same thing with scripture. Sometimes we look at the Bible and say, why does God command that? Why does God give us that instruction? Why is that story in the Bible? Why? Why? We ask these questions, why? And we, ha- we have those questions until we take a step back. And then we see the overall theme of the Bible. We see that Jesus is the bigger picture of the Bible. And in light of Jesus, it makes sense. It makes sense why we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. The Bible is all about Jesus. Don't tell me that you love Jesus, but you don't love the Bible. You cannot love Jesus and trash the Bible at the same time because the Bible contains his very life breath. You cannot separate God's word from God. You cannot separate the Bible from Jesus. And Jesus is the answer to our deepest questions, our biggest fears, and our greatest desires. The Bible prepares us for how to live now and how to live for all eternity. And that's what our world needs right now. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but our world is crazy right now. Have y'all noticed this? I mean, just the news headlines are like reading tabloids from 20 years ago, you know? I mean, things are nuts right now. But here's the thing. Even though our world is crazy, guys, it's always been crazy. Maybe it's crazier at certain times, but it's always been crazy. Ever since sin has entered this world, the world has been crazy. And people need somewhere where they could hear the truth. And that's supposed to be the church. God has spoken to us through his word so that we can really live, so that we can escape all this craziness around us. And it's our job to share his word with the rest of the world who is in desperate need of it. I mean, did you ever think that you would see two NFL professional football teams down on their knees in prayer in prime time on national television crying out to God? Did you ever think you would see that happen prior to it happening just a little while ago? Did you ever think you would see an ESPN analyst commentator lead a prayer on live television? because he was crying out to God for help. By the way, ESPN, who this guy works for, has a policy that you don't talk about God if you're employed by them on air, and yet he led a prayer openly on TV, risking his job. You know why? Because when people are really desperate, when times are really tough, they don't turn to the government, they don't turn to politicians. They don't turn to celebrities. They don't turn to social influencers. They don't turn to science. They don't turn to the CDC. They don't turn to MSNBC or CNN or Fox News or Yahoo News or the Weather Channel, for that matter. When people are really desperate, when times are really tough, they need to hear from God. And that's why, yeah. And that's why God has given us His Word. And that's why the church is here, to share His Word with the world. And so, we're living in a time when people are hungry for something more than what this culture is offering them. Why do you think there was a two week revival that broke out on a college campus in Wilmore, Kentucky, that was unplanned? This generation is hungry for something more. And I don't know about you. but I'm excited to get to be the church in this generation that shares God's word with them. And I hope you're excited as well. And so that's why here at First Church, we're not gonna hide God's word, we're not gonna back away from it, we're not gonna cover it up, we're not gonna water it down. We're not gonna be ashamed of it. No, our goal is the same goal that the Apostle Paul had. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. That's what we're gonna do here. We're gonna do it in love. We're not gonna beat people up with the Bible. We don't do that. We're gonna teach the truth in love and in grace as God wants us to. But we're going to teach the truth and we're going to teach God's word. Not just part of it, not just pieces of it, not just the parts that we like or the parts that make people feel comfortable. We're gonna teach what God wants us to know. Because we don't want anybody to ever leave our church. We don't. The church is for everybody, everywhere. We don't want anybody to ever leave our church. Because we love people and people are not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. Sin's the enemy. We don't want for anybody to ever leave our church. And it breaks our heart every time somebody does. But let me just say this. If a person leaves our church after hearing the truth Taught in love. It's better than if they sat here week after week for years comfortable believing a lie. I would rather somebody hear the truth in love than believe a lie and think that they're okay. People need to hear from God, not from Chad, not from a certain teacher on TV, not from the latest book, people need to hear from God. And that's why we will continue to teach and preach in love God's word. Because as Peter tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. No book has been more attacked than the Bible. No book has been more analyzed, scrutinized in the Bible. No book has been burned more and banned more than the Bible. And yet, the Bible remains and it continues to change lives because it is the word of God. So we will continue to teach and preach and love the timeless and eternal, the infallible and inerrant, the living and enduring word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to open up your word and listen to your voice. And I pray that we will not just be a church that listens to your voice on Sundays, but we will listen to your voice every single day as you are speaking to us through your scripture. So Father, thank you so much for the Bible because it is for our good. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen.